Laura. Hey, Lord. So how did it go with Kat? Did you talk to her? Oh, well, Lord, not exactly. (laughs) Did you forgive her? Well, Lord, I mean, I was just thinking, like, why should I forgive her? (laughs) Because I asked you to. Well, yeah, I know you did, Lord, but why? We shouldn't have to know why, just that I asked you to do it. Well, that doesn't make any sense, Lord. I mean, you don't understand the situation. Kathleen has an attitude problem. Laura, you believe that I know what is best for you and for Kat? Well, yeah, Lord. Then you'll do this. But, Lord... This is no different than when I've asked you to do anything else. Yes, this is, Lord. This is way different. When I asked you to quit your job, you quit. Well, of course, Lord, but I didn't like my job, so I was happy to leave, you know? I mean, this is way different. Okay, Lord, you know what? I've got an idea. How about we give it a week and I'll pray about it? Uh, I'll give you my answer now. Uh, But, Lord... Look, Kat's coming by here very soon. She's coming by here? Well, let's go. Now's your chance to talk to her. I want you to forgive her. Lord, you don't understand. Hey! Like two weeks since we've had coffee. Oh, it has. We should totally get together this week. Wow, I can't do that. I am so busy. Oh, yeah. Well, how about next week? Well, you know, actually, I don't think it's going to happen for a while. Oh, well, is everything okay? Oh, yeah, everything's great. Uh huh. All right. Um, I guess I'll just um, see you later then. Bye. Lord, did you hear that attitude? I thought you were going to forgive her. I thought you said we could wait a week, Lord. No, you said that. Okay, Lord, you're being unreasonable, okay? Why don't you just go talk to Kathleen and have her come to me and ask for my forgiveness? Laura, you need to obey. I want you to forgive Kat. But, Lord... Why do you keep calling me Lord? You won't even do what I ask. And that's it, isn't it? Comical, but it's, it's all too real. Today, we're finishing our series in uh, our transformed series where we've been talking about allowing God to change you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you'll be able to learn God's will for you, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. So today, we're going to talk about your uh, vocational life. And I really should have titled this your life work instead of your work life because your life work is far more important than your job because you're going to change jobs. How many of you have had more than one job in your lifetime? How many of you are in a job that you think you will have until you are dead? All right. Okay. So you like your job though, right? She loves her job. So anybody else, anybody else, you're in a job. I mean, me, I want, okay. There's like three of us, four of us, maybe for every person who figures out God's work, God's dream for their life and pursues that there are nine people who don't ever try. Or maybe there are 90 people, or maybe there's 9,000, or maybe there's 90,000. Like in the story we're going to look at today, there was one person who went after his life work, what God wanted him to do. One person who was obedient. There were, there were thousands upon thousands who were disobedient. And I think the problem is we're kind of afraid. Sometimes we don't know what our life work is. We don't know why God put us on this earth, but sometimes, well, actually all the time, when you discover what God wants you to do, it's so much bigger than your plan. It's so much harder than your plan that you are afraid to even try it because you're afraid you might fail. God's plan is always bigger. God's plan is always better. God's plan is always more fulfilling. You've got to discover that and go for it. But I think what makes us afraid is what we're going to look at today. It's these giant dream busters that stand in your way. They stand literally on your, in your path and they say, you will not pass by. You will not accomplish what 
God wants you to do. And it, and it comes from your enemy, the devil. But sometimes we are the people that, that actually the enemy, the devil uses to block other people's paths. So today we're going to look at how to apply God's word to your life. Specifically, we're going to look at the story of David and Goliath. And, and I hope to look at it in a little bit different way so that you'll understand it. And maybe it'll come alive to you. So I've got some, um, some pictures up here that I want to show you. First of all, you need to understand the, the, the geography of Israel. Now, if you see the, the mountainous, I get, got one of these where you can see the mountains up here. You can see Jerusalem down here and Bethlehem. In the mountains on the eastern side of Israel are all the famous cities that you've heard about. Jerusalem, Bethlehem, uh, Hebron, places like that. Now, if you look over here by the coast where you see Joppa and Ashdod and Ashkelon, that's the coastal plains are very flat. Now, I got another one. Go to the next one. All right, so you can see the mountains there, and then you can see the flat coastal plains. And then you can also see there's something in the middle called the Shephelah, uh, S-H-E-F-E-L-A, Shephelah. And what that is is a series of uh, canyons and caves and, and things that run east and west from the flat coastal plains up into the mountains. I've got another one. What's the next one? So there you see some of the mountains of Israel. Go to the next one. There's some of the coastal plains from the mountains, so you can see it gets very flat as you're going towards the ocean. Next one. Okay, so today we're going to study something, David and Goliath. It happened in the Valley of Elah, and so you see that here. See where Jerusalem, Gibeah, Bethlehem are? You see Soko and Azekah? There's the Valley of Elah, and it's very important to understand what's going on here because I hope this will make the uh, the the story come alive. Do I have another one? All right, so that's kind of the picture of the Valley of Elah. I think I have one more. All right, so if you look, see these two mountains here, where the story is going to take place today is um, the, the Philistines, who are the arch enemies of the Israelites, they come from Crete, they're a seafaring people, they, they come and they, uh, they settle on the, the flat coastal lands where Tel Aviv is today. Tel Aviv is on the flat stuff near the ocean. If you fly into Israel, you have to fly into Tel Aviv. So the, the Philistines are gathered around, they're living near Tel Aviv, and they decide that they want want to take the mountain region. They want to defeat the Israelites. So they start in the Shephelah and they get in one of those valleys and they start coming along and they come to a point called the Valley of Elah. Um, Saul is the king at this time. Saul hears about it, brings his army down. And so the, the Israelites are on this side of the, on this mountain here, the other mountain you see on the other side right there, that's where the Philistines are gathered. And they basically sit there on the mountains. Nobody's on the valley because it's very dangerous to go into the valley. And they're staring at one another. Nothing's happening for days and days and days. And then the Israelites get tired of that. So it's a deadlock. So finally they send out Goliath. You've heard the story. They send out Goliath and he starts taunting the, the Israelites and saying, somebody come and fight me. Send a mighty warrior and we're going to duke it out one-on-one. And, and now this is something that was done quite often. It was called one-on-one or, or single combat. Two warriors from each side would fight. Whoever won, that army would win and, and the rest of them would, would take the outcome of that fight. Now, no one wants to go up against Goliath because if, if, if you read the Bible, it says that Goliath was six cubits and a span. A cubit is 18 inches. A span is nine inches. If you do the math, that's nine feet, nine inches tall. Nobody wants to go up against this big warrior until this little kid, a shepherd comes up and says, I'll fight him. And, and Saul says, you're, you're insane. You're a child. This guy's been a warrior since his youth. You're just a youth. You're going to get beaten. And he says, well, you know, I've killed some lions. I've killed some bears. And, and he's saying, I'm not totally pathetic. 
I really want to do it. And since Saul was out of other volunteers, David was the only one, he lets him go. And this is really funny because Saul is head and shoulders above anyone in Israel. He's taller than anybody else in Israel. He should have been the one to go. But here comes a kid, someone who's not even old enough to be in the army yet. And he says, I'll fight him. So so Saul, the biggest man in, in Israel, puts all of his armor on this kid. And I wish we had video of it because wouldn't that be funny, him walking around? He's not even big enough to hold the sword and this big helmet. Have you ever seen a kid put on a football helmet? It's too big, you know, and they can see out the ear hole. That's kind of how David was. And he goes, no, no, I can't do this. Don't need that. I'm just going to use what I've got. He picks up some stones. You know the story. He puts one in the sling. He goes running towards uh, Goliath. Goliath says, I'm going to I'm, I'm going to feed you to the birds of the air. And he says, no, you've come against the, the name of the Lord God Almighty. He slings his sling. He throws the rock. What happens? It hits Goliath. Goliath falls down. He goes over. I, I wish we could see this too, because if he's not big enough to wear Saul's armor, he's not big enough to pick up even Goliath's sword. So the Bible tells us that when he kills him, he goes, runs over, stands on him, picks up the sword. Can you just see it? A kid picking up the sword. And, and I'm sure it's all he could do to, to chop. And, and I don't think he got through in one chop. And so I think he's gets there and and he's not going to swing that thing again. So he just starts sawing the head off. And then it says when the, when the Philistines saw that they ran all the way back to the coastal plains and the Israelites chased them and they had this great, great victory. Now we've all heard that a thousand times. It's funny too, because David takes the sword. I'm sure he drug it. He couldn't carry it. He drug it along and Saul's head. That's going to be even funnier here in a second when I explain to you how big Saul's head was. Goliath, not Saul. Saul got killed later. Goliath, thank you. That's funny too. It's wrong, wrong. That was wrong. The reason I think we like this story, we use it as the one in a million long shot goes up against the favorite and he wins and we love that story. But I've got to ask you this today. This is what I want you to focus on today. Why do we call David a one in a million long shot? Well, first of all, he's a kid. He's a shepherd. He's probably half the size. I've got some pictures I'm going to show you in a minute of some really tall dudes. And it's funny when they're standing up against somebody else. And, and he's going against this experienced warrior. So, you know, that's, that's one reason we call him a one in a million long shot. Second, he's normal size. Um, he's probably my, my size, but not as thick, you know, cause he's a kid. I'm, I've, I've put on a lot of thickness. I'm, I'm stocky. I was in Haiti this week and, and I ate a bunch in Haiti and I was standing there after one meal and I was doing this and, and one of my Haitian interpreters walked up, Fito walks up and he goes, big belly. <laughs> and I was thinking, if we were in America, I might be offended by that, but I'm standing next to a very skinny Haitian and that's okay. Big belly. Yes. But, but David's probably normal size and very thin because he's, he's, he's a young guy. And so we think he's going up against an, a nine foot, nine inch giant. So that's, that's another reason we think that he's a one in a million long shot. But then we also realize that Goliath is decked out head to toe in every, uh, bit of battle armor that he can have. And he has every weapon known to the people at that time. And here comes a shepherd. And so we think, okay, all David has is a sling. And if, if you ever have thought all David has is a sling, then you misunderstand the story. That's where we're headed today. Ancient armies had three kinds of warriors. They had the, the people who rode chariots. That's the cavalry. They had heavy infantry. That's what Goliath was. They were completely uh, armored up. They had a shield. They had a sword. They had a javelin, anything that they could carry with them. And then they had artillery. The third uh, company that that an army would have is artillery. That's made up of people with bows and arrows and slingers. 
There were actually slingers back in the time. They were trained artillery who used a sling. A sling was a leather pouch that had a couple of long strings on it and, and ropes attached to it. You'd pick up a rock, put it in the middle, you'd sling it, you'd let go of one side and the rock would come out really fast. Now, David did not have a slingshot. A slingshot that we think of today, that's not a deadly weapon. If it was, all of the parents would be dead by now, right? Because their kids have one. What David had was a sling, which was very different and far more lethal. Now, believe it or not, there are sling nerds out there who have done all of the calculations about this. I love sling nerds. From their research, we discovered that an experienced slinger could rotate the sling above his head six to seven times per second. If you do the math on that, and the sling nerds, bless their hearts, have done the math, we find out that that when the rock came out, it would be traveling at 105 feet per second. That means if, if Goliath is 100 feet away from him, 30 yards, 33 yards or so away from David, he, the rock would come out of the sling and hit him in the head in less than a second. That explains why he was unable to get out of the way. He doesn't know what's happening. The second interesting thing is the sling nerds did this for us, bless their hearts. They did the, the calculations of what it would be, um, what this rock would be. It was probably barium sulfate, which is very uh, plentiful in the Valley of Elah. It's a very hard, very uh, heavy rock. And, and when you sling it around and it moves at 105 feet per second, the ballistics of that, not making this up, it is equal to the knockdown power of a 45 bullet, 45 caliber bullet. So what David has is very, very lethal. It's a dangerous weapon. And we know from the Bible that experienced slingers, and David was an experienced slinger, they were incredibly accurate. They could hit birds that were flying. I know dudes that can't do that with a shotgun, much less a sling, right? If you've ever shot at a dove moving 60 miles an hour, you understand. But I want you to see a verse that talks about, the Bible tells us that slingers were very, very accurate. And this is an interesting verse that comes from Judges 2016. Look what it says. In this army, there were 700 left-handed experts who could sling a rock at a target the size of a hair and hit it every time. Now, I'm sorry, I can't ever see this without thinking of the Princess Bride. If you hadn't seen it, I'm sorry. But, you know, when they're fighting and he goes, I have a secret. I am not left-handed. Well, God puts this in here because back then, right hand was the the the, the position of prominence. And, and so I think God put this in here to say, I am left-handed. If you're left-handed, yay for you. It's not goofy. God made you that way. But left-handed people that could sling... Uh, they could sling a rock at a hair and hit it every time. That's pretty impressive. So there's no question that what David has is a weapon that is very capable of taking out Goliath. In fact, in ancient warfare, slingers were used against the infantry because smart people said, why would we want to fight hand-to-hand combat with people who are fully armored and have all kinds of hand-to-hand weapons when we can stand 30 yards or further apart? We can shoot them with arrows. We can sling rocks. We can, we can kill them. Smart folks said, let's kill them before they get to us, right? Goliath is heavy infantry. He expected a battle hand to hand. That's why he says, come to me that I might feed your, your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. I'm going to come back to this several times. The key phrase is come to me. Come right here. Come where I can get my hands on you, where my sword can get you, where my, where my javelin, my spear can get you. The key phrase, come to me. But David's not an idiot. David's a pretty smart guy. He has no intention of going up against an infantry guy with swords and spears. And so, you know, that old phrase, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Well, don't bring a knife to a sling fight because a slinger is going to knock you in the head and kill you. 
and chop you off with your own sling. Y'all didn't even think that was funny. So here's a guy. Now, this is, this is the point I'm trying to make. Here's a guy who has changed the rules of combat without telling his opponent. He has superior technology and he's filled with the spirit of the Lord. And we call him the underdog. Are you with me on this? Everybody tracking? Superior technology. You've changed the rules of combat and you didn't tell your opponent. And God, the the God of angel armies is walking with you. Shouldn't we call him the favorite? Thank you, Miss Yvonne. Second interesting thing that I just discovered this week. It's not just that we have radically underestimated David's ability, his prowess. We have misunderstood and we have overestimated Goliath. And this is something that kind of blew my mind when I was studying actually last week. I I did two sermons last week before we went to Haiti. Goliath was supposed to be this mighty warrior, right? But if you read it, and I I challenged some of y'all to read um, 1 Samuel 17, 1 through 58. And I don't know if you did that or not. But when you read it, there's some details in the story that kind of jump out to you as inconsistent with him being unbeatable, undefeatable warrior. First is he's led onto the valley floor by an attendant. That doesn't make sense. Someone brings him down, leads him kind of like a child out on the place where the the fight is supposed to take place. That doesn't make any sense. If you're the biggest, baddest warrior in, in, of the Philistines, you should be able to get to the floor by yourself, right? Okay. That doesn't make sense. Second thing is the Bible indicates when David comes to the battle, David moves very quickly. It never says that Goliath moves quickly. And I think there's a reason for that. We'll get there in a second. Why is this great, fearsome warrior moving slowly and being led by the hand by an attendant? Then there's the fact that Goliath takes an awful long time to figure out what's going on. I mean, I don't think he's the smartest guy on the planet. David comes down from the hill. He's, he, he may have had his staff because shepherds didn't go anywhere without a staff. But even if, if he doesn't have his staff, this next part doesn't make any sense. He's got a staff, maybe. He's got the sling, we know for sure. And he's got a bag of rocks. It's clear from the outset that David has no intention of fighting him, sword fighting him. And so what does Goliath do? He stands there and says, come here, come to me, come to me. He's not getting it. Why is he not getting it? Well... Then there's one other thing. As David draws near, he says this really strange thing to him. He says, why do you come? Am I a dog that you would come at me with sticks? Okay, if he's a shepherd and he has his shepherd's staff, he's got one stick, not two. If he doesn't have the shepherd's staff, that even is crazier because what's he seeing as sticks? David doesn't have sticks. He has a stick at the most or, or just a sling. So why does Goliath see there's two sticks when there's only one? Well, okay, the answers to these questions... Are, are given by some endocrinologists who have gotten really, really interested in Goliath, this story from the Bible. And it's at least plausible explanations for some of this stuff. So this kind of sounds like a Mythbusters episode. When, when Mythbusters, you know, they'll, they'll try the thing out and if it's plausible, they'll say plausible. And if it's, if it's busted, oh, it's busted, boom, or, or it's confirmed. So, so I want you to think that at least these, these ideas are plausible. Goliath is huge. He's head and shoulders above everybody else. The most common cause, and this, this is actually a condition, it's called giantism. Giantism, the most common cause, is from something called acromagaly. I want you to say that. It's a fun word to say, acromagaly. Acromagaly. So I actually do what anybody does when they don't understand something nowadays. I googled acromagaly. And I got to the, the Mayo Clinic, and here is from the Mayo Clinic, here's what they say acromagaly is. It's a hormonal disorder that develops when your pituitary gland produces too much growth hormone. Most of the great giants in human history had acromagaly. Did I put that in there? You got me? Okay, have you ever heard of Andre the Giant? Go down to the pictures. I left it in the pictures. I didn't put it actually in the flow of the presentation. 
You see him down there in pictures? Nope, that's the wrong one. You don't know who Andre the Giant is. Andre the Giant. Again, Princess Bride. He's the big guy in the Princess Bride. Anybody want a peanut? That's one of my favorite lines. So you don't know it, you need to go watch it. He rhymes with everything. No more rhyming and I mean it. Anybody want a peanut? So if you've ever watched Andre Giant, he's, he's deceased now. He was a wrestler. Look how big he is compared to those other, those other guys are big dudes. Andre the Giant had a chromagali. Have you ever watched him? I never understood how he ever won a match besides laying on somebody because he's very, very slow. All right. Well, uh, the, the Guinness book of world records has the tallest man is Robert Wadlow. That's that other tall guy. Look how tall he is compared to the women and the car. He was eight feet, nine inches tall. He had a chromagali. Now scientists believe that, that Goliath may have had a chromagali. And, and, you know, my family, we, we watch TV and we'll see the commercials, you know, and when they talk about the different, um, uh, pills you can take, you know, all the, the, the different stuff you can take, they always have to do the side effects now. And some of the side effects are like death or your left ear falls off your body, or, you know, you'll, you'll have your knee amputated. I don't know. It's crazy stuff. When you hear those side effects, you go, why would anybody ever take that pill? Okay. Well, if there was a commercial for a chromagali, I want you to hear the side effects of this disease. They include, this is not all of them, but I just thought this was good. Go ahead and put Andre the Giant back up there because I, I just kind of want to focus on, think about him. Now, here are the enlarged hands and feet, enlarged facial features, excessive sweating and body odor, that's just gross, fatigue and muscle weakness, a deepened husky voice. You, you remember how he talked? I, can, I could barely understand him, and I knew the words of Princess Bride. So he had difficulty talking um, because of enlarged vocal cords. Impaired vision, pain and limited joint ability, mobility, enlarged liver, heart, kidney, spleen, and other organs. Basically, everything on the person is too big because of a chromagali. Apply all of those things to Goliath. You can take them, him off now. Here's a man who moves slowly. He's being led by an attendant. Why, why, is, he, why is he moving slowly? He, he may be afraid of tripping over a rock that he can't see. Why is he being led by an attendant? Because he's not sure where he's supposed to go. Um, why, um, here's a guy who takes forever to figure out David is not in fact intending to fight him with a sword and a spear because David does not have a sword and a spear. Why? Maybe it's because he can't see him. And then when he does get close enough, he says sticks when there's only one stick or maybe no stick. Why? Because he may have had impaired vision. So I tell you all of this to say whether, whether Goliath was the big champion of the day and David was the one in a million long shot or even if he had a chromagali and he wasn't what he seemed, there's a couple of lessons we need to learn from the life of David and Goliath, from the story of David and Goliath. Let me fly through those real quickly. First lesson, and this is where this we're applying. From now on, we're applying. First lesson is giants are not what they seem. They are never what they seem. All of the Israelites came up on their mountain every day. Goliath would come out from their vantage point. He was huge. He was unbeatable. Not one of them stopped to con- consult God and say, can we take him? If you study David's life many times, David would say, God, should I go to war? And, and God would say, go to war. Or he'd say, do this. Should I do it this way? If you, if you consult God, you get a different perspective on things. So the giants in your life are not what they seem. Second lesson, giants can be slain or they can be defeated. Giants are not unbeatable in your life, especially by those who have the spirit of the Lord. Now you're probably not going to face a physical giant. Probably not. But there are other giants that I'm, I'm willing to bet you will face. Giants in your work life, in your relational life, in your married life, in your financial life. In this story, David actually had to fight four giants before he ever got to the battlefield. 
Not giants physically that stood in front of him, but giants of the mind. And it's the same giants that you're going to have to face if you are going to become the person that God wants you to be. If you know your Bible history, you know that David was anointed king long years before he ever became king. And so these four things are the same giant dream busters you're going to face. And the first one is this delay. When God shows you what he wants you to do, there's always delay. He gives you a dream one day, but he does not fulfill that dream the next day. It's usually years in between. When we had the dream of starting a church like New Life, it was 1998. We didn't start New Life until the middle of 2002. And then it was another three years before we knew for sure that it was going to stick. So about seven years before we figured out that. And then it was it was another um, few years after that before we bought a building. And then it was another several months after that before we moved into the building. And so there's always a delay between when God reveals to you what you're supposed to be, when he puts that dream in your heart and he begins to fulfill it. God has a plan for your life, but so does everybody else. And when God's plan contradicts somebody else's plan, there's going to be a delay because people are going to try to hold you back. In David's life, he might have been old enough to go to the battle, but but his dad, knowing he had been anointed king, his dad held him back to watch sheep. There's going to be somebody who tries to hold you back. There's going to be a delay between the dream and reality. Second giant dream buster is discouragement. You will face discouragement because everybody around you is scared to death. Nobody thinks you can do it. They're all convincing each other it's impossible. The first year we went to Haiti, people said, you can't do it. You're going to die. You'll never come back. We'll have to get your bodies back. I heard all of these things. We'll have to ship your bodies back. Oh, you cannot go to Haiti. We went to Haiti. We've been going for eight years. I I was just interviewed this week while I was in Haiti for a a pastor's conference about what it takes to get a group down there. And and every year somebody comes up and says, oh, this horrible thing happened. That You're going to die. You're going to die in Haiti. And I've been there eight times and come back eight times. And I, I told them. And I've told the congregation, if the Lord leaves me on this planet, I intend to go at least until I'm 70 and then I'll renegotiate after that. I got 19 more years. I want to go more than 19 times. I'd love to start going twice a year to Haiti because the need is so great. People are going to say, you can't do it. You can't do it. Well, if God says I can, I can. Goliath had created a climate of fear. Look at 1 Samuel 17, 10 and 11. Every day he would yell, I defy the armies of Israel today. Send a man who will fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Here's the thing I want you to realize. The majority is going to tell you you can't do it. And the majority is usually wrong. Sometimes you need a kid from a small village to come along and say, I'll fight him. Let's challenge the status quo. I can beat him. If you listen to negative people, you know what happens to you? You become negative. If you listen to fearful people, you know what happens to you? You become fearful. If you hang out with cowards, you become a coward. If you hang out with angry people, you become angry people. If you hang out with negative people, you'll become negative. Stop it. The kingdom of God doesn't need negative people. The kingdom of God needs people to see from God's perspective. There's another giant dream buster that David had to go through, and it's disapproval. Most people don't go after their dream because they're afraid somebody's going to say, you can't do it. And David's own brother says to him, you spoiled brat. Who's watching the sheep? If you go after God's dream, there's probably going to be somebody even in your own family that says, you can't do it. You ever heard of sibling rivalry? That's what was going on here. Someone criticized you because they think they know you, but here's the deal. They don't know what God's shown you. So it doesn't matter what my brothers think. It matters what God thinks. Do you know, even Jesus had to deal with this. Jesus was, was the firstborn of Mary and Joseph. He was not Joseph's son. God was the father of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. It was a virgin birth, but she had other, Mary and Joseph had other 
children after Jesus. And they had them the natural way. I heard, a, a, saw a video where it said Mary was a virgin her whole life. Not if you read the scriptures. James, the one who wrote the book of James, the half-brother of Jesus, how did he get here? Mary and Joseph had sex and they had a child. There were others, but here's the thing I want you to realize. None of Jesus' brothers, half-brothers and sisters, they followed him around. None of them become followers of Jesus until after he was resurrected from the dead. In fact, there's a time that they thought he was crazy and they tried to come get him not to do his ministry because they thought he was nuts until he rose from the dead. Because if your brother were to rise from the dead, because think about what your brother would have to do to convince you that you were Jesus, that, that you know... He was Jesus, God. He would have to come back. He would have to predict he's going to die. He would have to come back. You know, even Thomas said, I'm going to have to stick my hands in, my fingers in the nail holes in his hands. And I'm going to have to put my, my hand in the spear hole in his side. And then when Thomas saw him, he said, my Lord and my God. Because what would your brother have to do? My brothers, I've got two brothers. Either one of them says they're God. I'm like calling their families. We need to get them in the hospital. Something's wrong. How, how would you like to have Jesus as your brother? How would you like to have Jesus as your brother? Because, you know, you're a kid, you're growing up, and Mary comes walking in and says, who did that? Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, I didn't. Jesus is lying. And she goes, Jesus never lies. <laughs> How would you like to have the perfect brother? Right? That's kind of funny. When you have a dream that God gives you, often your family will say you can't do it. And often your family will say, who do you think you are? You respond, it doesn't matter who I think I am. It only matters who God is, and I'm going to follow him. I actually had to say that to my dad one time. Daddy, it doesn't matter what you think. i got to please my heavenly father. If you have a big God, you better have some big goals. Let the size of your God determine your dream. Giant dream buster number four, doubt. David goes to see King Saul, and I'm just going to read you this verse very quickly. This is uh, 1 Samuel 17, 32. Don't worry about a thing, David told him. I'll take care of the Philistines. And confidence in God is often seen as cockiness, right? Anytime you have faith in God, people can think that you're actually being cocky. But, but if you're having faith in God, you'll be proven right. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. How can a kid like you fight with a man like him? You're only a boy. He's been in, in the army since he was a boy. The experts say you can't do it. That causes doubt. But I'm going to tell you the same thing about experts that I say about the majority. Experts are often wrong. So let's talk four things about how to defeat a giant. First of all, you got to remember how God has helped me in the past. Has anybody ever had God do even a small thing for you in your life? Let me see your hands. Anybody had something you go, man, that had to be God. No matter how small it was, if he did it once, he's probably going to do it again because God is faithful. Look what David says. I have killed lions and bears that way, and I can kill this worthless Philistine. He shouldn't have made fun of the army of the living God. The Lord has rescued me from the claws of lions and bears, and he will keep me safe from the hands of the Philistines. Where's his confidence? Is it in himself? No, it's in God. He said, God did it before. He'll do it again. If you can look at your life and see that God's done something, he's going to do it again. He's faithful. Second thing, use the tools that God has already provided. He didn't take the armor that Saul had. He said, I don't need those. I need to use what God has already given me. New life wouldn't be a church if we'd waited until everything fell into place before we just started out on our dream. Haiti pastors I met with, I went to five different churches to try to figure out where we're going this next year. None of them have any physical resources. In fact, a couple of the pastors are living in shacks that if the, if the big bad wolf comes and huffs and puffs, it will fall down. Yet they, they say, I'm not going to wait until my house is right. I'm going to go build the kingdom of God. That's incredible to me. So wherever we go, I'm not even sure where we're going yet. I, I'm praying about that. But wherever we go, we, it, it, we can't lose because we're going in the name of Jesus Christ. 
He said, I don't need your armor. I'm going to use what I've got, a sling and a stone. Third is ignore dream busters. How many people encouraged David to go fight Goliath? Zero. What did he do? Now, we find this out actually later, a few chapters later, he's having some more issues. In 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, look what it says. When others were speaking against him, David, David encouraged himself in the Lord. You better learn how to do that. Because when you strike out on God's path, family members, friends are going to say, who do you think you are? You can't do that. You've got to learn how to encourage yourself in the Lord because somebody, nobody, sometimes nobody else will do it. Fourth thing, expect God to help me for his glory. That's the key. Listen to this verse and then I'm going to apply it and we're done. David answered to, to Goliath, you come out to fight me with a sword and a spear and a dagger, but I've come out to fight you in the name of the Lord, all powerful. He is the God of Israel's army and you have insulted him too. Today, the Lord will help me defeat you. I'll knock you down, cut off your head. I'll feed the bodies of the other Philistines to the birds and the wild animals. Look at this. Then the whole world will know that Israel has a real God. See, here's what happens. A lot of people will pray and say, God, help me. I rarely hear people pray, God, help me so that others will know you are God and I'm your child. I don't hear that prayer very often. God, help me so that I can go live like hell again. God, help me so that I can get enough money to live like I want to and totally ignore your word. God, help me so that I can ignore the church. God, help me, help me, help. Nobody prays. I don't hear it. God, help me so that your name will be honored in this place. I don't have to be the smartest person in the world. Praise God. I don't have to be the best looking person in the world. Praise God. I don't have to be the wealthiest person. I have to be the person who says, God, wherever you lead me, I'm going to follow. I'm going to say yes before you even give me the plan. Every year we talk about Haiti. Every year, twice as many people say they want to go than actually go. And I understand stuff happens, you know, like um, Michael and Tricia, they went last year. We told them they have to go every year. Well, she's pregnant now and, and they can't go because she's going to be having the baby and all of that stuff. And, and stuff like that happens. I understand that. But every year I believe people are disobedient to the Lord because there's this tug in their heart that says you need to go. And, and so the, one of the questions they asked me in this interview, they said, what do you do? How do you recruit a team? And I said, I come back and I talk about it. And here's the number one thing you need to ask. God, do you want me to go? Number one thing. If God says yes, everything else he'll take care of. Because remember last week I said it all belongs to God. If God says yes, he's, then, then you say, God, there's a plane ticket you need to buy to Haiti. There's, there's vacation. Yeah. Shandy. Shandy was disobedient until what? A month ahead of time? Six weeks weeks ahead of time. My daughters kept saying, Shandy, the Lord's calling you to go. And she's like, Lord hasn't told me that. I ain't going. And it was, it was mainly finance related. And thank you for sitting on the front row. Thank you for not, not being upset that I'm using you as an example. And then when she went, I remember her saying, thank you all for, for encouraging me to go because everything seemed like it shouldn't happen. And the funds came in. So you need to ask, not just about Haiti. God, what do you want me to do? Become that person. And here's the last thing. You have no idea how much your unbelief is holding someone else back. Your unbelief could hold back a spouse. Your unbelief could hold back a child. Don't be the person who says, my belief for your life, my dream for your life is better than God's. Never hold somebody back. Bow your heads for just a moment. Four things I talked about. Four giant 
dream busters. Delay, discouragement, disapproval, and doubt. Which one are you struggling with? I don't care if it's marriage or work or relationships or finances. There's one of those dream busters that Satan is saying, you can't do it because of this. You cannot be the person God's called you to be. Stop listening to Satan. Stop listening to other people. Start listening to God. Father, change us into a people who not only change Palestine and surrounding areas, but we go to the utter ends of the the world to carry your message about Jesus. Let us, let us pour out ourselves for the benefit of others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.